So let me ask you, what names come to mind when you think of the pioneers of aromatherapy? For those of you working in the field, you'll probably say Renee Maurice Scottifossi, Margaret Maury, maybe Jean Valnet. Of course, they're all really important figures that help shape aromatherapy as a discipline. But there's another very well-known name, especially in the English-speaking world, but really all over the world, and that's my guest today, Robert Tisserand. Robert Tisserand is often called the father of modern aromatherapy, as it was he who brought the practice into popularity with the publication of his book, The Art of Aromatherapy, back in 1977. That book was actually the first English-language book on aromatherapy. Today, it's been translated into more than 11 different languages. But of course, Robert's also widely known for the textbook Essential Oil Safety, now in its second edition, which he co-authored with Dr. Rodney Young. That book is the industry standard for essential oil safety guidelines. Honestly, he's got such an impressive and accomplished resume that I can't possibly go through it all here. But I will tell you that Robert is an international speaker, an educator, and a consultant on the science and benefits of essential oils and he focuses on their safe and effective application. So if you know Robert, or you know of Robert, or even if this is the first time you're hearing about him, I think in this episode, you're in for a real treat. I think, no, I know that in the next hour, you're gonna discover another side of Robert Tisserand beyond the books, the classes, and the lectures. You're gonna get a more personal side of him. We talk about his early years growing up in London, his college years studying Portuguese, and then his dream of becoming a film director. Yes, you heard that right, a film director. He shares what got him interested in essential oils, how he ended up writing that now famous book, The Art of Aromatherapy, and reveals what aromatherapy was like in the UK back in the 1970s. Spoiler alert, it's nothing like it is today. But we also have an honest discussion about what aromatherapy is today, what's changed over the years, and what people get really wrong about the field. There's so much packed into this episode that I'm not going to hold you up any longer. Grab a cup of tea, go for a nice long walk, maybe sit yourself down on a bench in a park somewhere, and enjoy this very candid and delightful conversation with Robert Tisserand. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Gagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. Hello, Robert. I want to welcome you to an aromatic life. Hi, Pro. Okay. Nice to have you here. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast because you're someone that I and a lot of people admire very much for the work that you've been doing. And you've been instrumental in shaping the field of aromatherapy, and you've certainly come to be known as the safety guy in more recent years. Um, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to talk about safety a little bit, but we also agreed that this conversation could get a little bit more personal so that people could get to know another side of you. So should we get started? Sure. 
All right, let's go. So I want to start by going back in time. So I was hoping you could start out by telling us just the simple things where you were born, talk about your early years as a kid. And I'd love to know, were you even interested in nature and smelling things? What were your curiosities as a kid? I was born uh, in a hospital in Hampstead in North London. Very nice. <laughs> um, that's where I was born. Um, and uh, my family, my parents, my family lived in uh, a nearby community called Muswell Hill. Okay. And um, so that's where I grew up and spent my youth. <laughs> and, Did you enjoy uh, smelling when you were little? Well, I, my, my dad was a walker. He liked to go for walks in the parks. Um, ah. I mean, we're in London, so, you know, it's yeah. a long way to real nature that's in true. any direction. That's um, but, yeah, he liked to walk a lot. So we would go to the park and... and uh, walk the dog and just walk around. I mean, I didn't go around sniffing things particularly. Uh, I don't remember doing that. Um, but, but I guess part of my introduction to alternative medicine was my mother's influence because um, she would go to her regular family doctor if she needed something, but, but she would also go see an acupuncturist or a homeopath or a herbalist um, or an osteopath. Wow. Um, she would do all of those things, and uh, I'm not sure where that came from for her, but, yeah, she was, uh, she was very much a believer in, in uh, what was then known as alternative medicine. Right, right, right. That's interesting. And I guess living in London, like you said, you're probably – didn't have the the smells of the countryside there with all those bricks and mortar around you but um I imagine for many of us like I didn't think about smell growing up either but now when I reflect back on my early years I can kind of think about what might have influenced what I like to smell just based on where I lived since I was so I was born in Germany and I spent the first six years of my life with uh apple trees, pear trees, all kinds of fruit trees in my backyard. And I always wondered why I was so drawn to those smells. And one day yeah. I asked my mom, I'm like, did we used to have scents like that in our backyard? Because I love them so much and I just don't know why. And then she explained to me that, yeah, we had a lot of those trees in our backyard. So I always find that interesting to go back into your scent memories from those early years. Because um, sometimes we don't even realize that we're drawn to certain smells because of our past. Well, that does remind me of something. Um, so um, my dad liked to grow vegetables in our backyard. Ah. And um, particularly he liked to grow spinach okay. and tall green beans, runner beans. Yeah. So um, it was kind of an annual ritual that, we would take the compost, which we'd been collecting, you know, for the previous so many months and dig it into the ground. And I kind of can remember the smell of that very earthy. Yeah. I mean, do you like earthy musty. smells? Uh, <laughs> that's a leading question. Oh, sorry. Um, I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I, 
I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't like or dislike earthy smells. I, okay. okay. Um, I like the smell of coffee, which is sometimes earthy. That's true. Um, so maybe there's something there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah digging that digging that into the ground, and we had very rich. Um, um, trying to think of the word, well hydrated soil. Yeah. <laughs> Got lots of rain. Um, lots of worms and so the all the veggies were really great and uh yeah i can remember the sort of green smell of the fresh beans and yeah you know washing them and stripping them i mean there's such a difference to the smell of something fresh from the garden as opposed to in a in a grocery store you know that you just buy where it's been sitting there for a while what what happened to produce That's a whole nother podcast episode. What happened to produce? (laughs) But it's true. What happened to that? It's a good question. Um, So then you eventually obviously went to, as you got older, you started, I imagine, studying somewhere. Did you study? I went to school. You went to school. school. (laughs) I did go to school. Yeah. (laughs) Very good. No, but did you study at university? What did you study? What were your interests? Okay. Well, at age 11, I went to a boarding school, which was um, some way out of London, uh, which was a good experience for me. I, I, I think uh, Americans often have a view that boarding school is some evil, terrible place that you're sent to for punishment, but... It's not the case, <laughs> wasn't, right? It was not for me, anyhow. <laughs> it was, I, I, I loved it. I, okay, you know, good. I enjoyed it. Um, maybe I just like being away from my family. I don't know, but... <laughs> Um, that was a good experience. And at school, um, I studied particularly English, French, and Spanish. Ah. And so when it came to going to college, I kind of wanted to do math and biology. Okay. But um, in my last two years at school, we had to specialize either in arts or sciences. So I couldn't do math, biology, and Spanish kind of thing. I just couldn't do that. So I ended up doing languages. And then when I went to college, I did something called Hispanic studies, which means in the first term, in the first semester, we learned the Portuguese language Ah. because all the students there uh, had studied Spanish, but not Portuguese. And that was kind of intense. And then we went on to study a lot of medieval Portuguese poetry and literature, which I was kind of disappointed in because I didn't want to study medieval literature. And medieval Portuguese literature isn't easy. It doesn't Um, sound easy, no. (laughs) And after two years of my three-year course, I dropped out and um, did not pursue a career in languages. Okay. You took a turn. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you head to next? <laughs> uh, well, I I, um, I decided <laughs> I decided I wanted to be a film director, but that didn't go anywhere either. So um, the closest I got to being the film director was working in a dark room in a basement in in central London, um, and this kind of dark room was literally black it wasn't one with a red light where you can actually see things it was oh. literally you couldn't see your hands wow. um 
And so I was processing a, a, a color slide film called Ectochrome, and that's the only way it can be processed. And so I got very familiar with the smell of formaldehyde, which is the last bath in the process. You have okay, many yeah. baths, color developer and things. And then I would come out of the dark room, go out to the end of the line where the films were coming out. And the last bath is formaldehyde. So they, everything always smelled of formaldehyde. So I'm very familiar with that. Odor. Okay. That takes you right back there, right? If you, if you smell that. <laughs> to, the, to the dark basement. Yes, yeah. to the dark basement. <laughs> to the dark place. I don't like formaldehyde, by the way. It's, it's, it's not a, I mean, I don't, well, yeah, it's not a pleasant smell. It's not. Let's be it's honest. It's not a pleasant smell. No, 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 no. But, you know, it has that connection. But yeah. you eventually, I guess if I were to continue down memory lane, <laughs> going now into your professional career, right? <laughs> Eventually, Eventually, we'll get there. Eventually, yes, we'll get there. We'll get yeah. there. So how do we make the transition? In 1974, you established the Aromatic Oil Company, right? It's called the Aromatic Oil right. Company. Well, in, in, um, it was 68 or 69. Uh, after I left college and done some odd jobs, and my mother said to me, why don't you study massage? And uh, that's what I did. Oh. So I went to massage school, a place called the Northern Institute of Massage in Blackpool. Um, and um, there I met people, a few people who were interested in essential oils. And uh, my mother had, you know, I had discussions with my mother about essential oils and aromatherapy. And uh, she was kind of doing aromatherapy already. When I say kind of, she was doing aromatherapy as yes. part of her, because my mother was a, an esthetician. And so this was part of her interest, a side interest, if you will. And um, so, yeah, one of the things I found was that people didn't buy essential oils anywhere. Yeah. Which is difficult if you want to practice aromatherapy. So I thought, well, maybe I could start a business selling essential oils to these people who can't yeah. buy them. Um, and that's how that got started. Ah, so that's also how you got to know distillers and the whole process of making essential oils, right? I imagine. Oh, over some time. Over yeah. Some yeah. Time. And uh, and I quickly realized that if you if you buy bottles with the eyedropper, which in those days, the eyedroppers were all made of rubber, just rubber. And if you put essential oils in the eyedropper bottle, the rubber absorbs the essential oil and swells up over a period of two or three months. And then the whole thing gets ruined. So oh boy. Um, my first attempts at selling essential oils were kind of thwarted and uh, there was probably still is a company called Nelson's that sells homeopathic tinctures in these wonderful bottles with the uh, little dropper insert in the top, the uh, orifice reducer. Right, right. And so I just made a phone call to Nelson's and I said, you know, uh, where'd you get your models? <laughs> 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 well, we get them from a company in Germany called Stella. Okay, thanks. So then I knew where to get the bottles. And for a couple of years, no one else knew where to get those bottles. You know, other people were trying to get in on the market. And it took a couple of years before anyone else figured out 
because they only really were only made by one company. Of course, they're made by many people now. I know it's so crazy how different it is today compared to back then. And yeah, it, we'll, it's we'll, pretty we'll talk about that difference. Um, mm-hmm. But let me ask you so, three years later, you published The Art of Aromatherapy, which is kind of believed to be why you're called the father of modern aromatherapy in a way, for, at least for the English speaking world, right? Because there was well, nothing all, at that time. So it was, well, also it was translated into 11 other languages. So, oh, wow. you know, I'm, I'm known in Brazil and the Czech Republic and Germany and uh, Japan because, you know, the book was published um, not in 1977, but within the next few years, it was published in many languages. That's amazing. Congratulations on that. But you, you created it because there was no guide really out there, right, at the time? I mean, what made you create the art of aromatherapy? Well, it started off as an article. I thought, well, I'll write an article for this health magazine on aromatherapy and see if I can get them to publish it. But I never actually sent the article to the magazine because it kept getting bigger. And then I thought, well, maybe I could write a a small book. And then it sort of grew bigger. And and then um, there was a publisher called C.W. Daniels, and um, their office was just uh, about a mile from where I lived and in London. So I just walked over to their office one day and knocked on the door and said, hey, do you want to publish a book? I love it. <laughs> and, if only um, we could do that today. <laughs> I can't do that It was today. actually this guy's house uh, where he worked from home. It was a small business. So he said, yes, come in, have a cup of tea, sit down. And, uh, you know, so went into his sort of office front room and, uh, well, you know, what's this book you want me to publish? And I said, well, it's on aromatherapy. And he said, ah, I've just signed a contract for another book on aromatherapy. And I said, oh, that must be Jean Valnet's book. And he looked at me as if I was some amazing psychic. And um, <laughs> how did you know? Well, the reason I knew is because I knew that was the only other book in the world at that time <laughs> on aromatherapy. Yeah. So it had to be that. It couldn't be anything else. Um, but anyhow, I left the office with a signed contract, same day. That's amazing. Because I said, well, yes, I'm very familiar with Barnes' book. And mine's different. Okay. So his is about... The science of aromatherapy in my book is going to be about the art of aromatherapy. And that's how I thought of it. And that's how that title came about. Oh, wonder. That's good to know. And um, Valnay's book actually got published some years after mine because it, they had several people working on the translation and they kept giving up. And then they'd employ another translator and then they would give up. And then they, the third one actually finished the book. It took oh, wow. a few years. Okay. Took about five years, I think. So back in the 70s, what was aromatherapy like? What was the very small? Very small. Very small. I mean, you know, I can tell you what it was like in the UK. It was very small. So I would say there might be, um, I don't know, something like 100 people in the whole of the UK who were actively interested or practicing aromatherapy. That's a guess, but, you know, I think I met half of them <laughs> and, um, yeah. and I was thinking apart from uh, apart from French speakers 
I only know of two people alive today who were doing aromatherapy before I was. So in the English-speaking world, I'm not going to name names. But I was going to ask you, who world, are they? But you don't have to. <laughs> I, I can only think of two people who were practicing aromatherapy before me, and everyone else is a newcomer as far as I'm concerned. Right, right, right. So it kind of, would you, <laughs> I'm a newcomer then, that's for sure. Um, would you say that it, it kind of spilled over from France into the UK? I don't even know what it was like in the US well, at it, that time. It kind of did because there were two um, French speakers living in London, Micheline Ossier and Daniel Ryman, okay. who both had studied with Marguerite Maury. Okay, yeah. And um, incidentally, they didn't speak to each other at all. Um, but um, I met both uh, ladies um, and uh, got to know Micheline Ostia quite well. Well, we often met at various meetings. Yeah, so I mean, they really introduced um, that approach of, of the more aesthetic beauty side of aromatherapy along with some energetics that Marguerite Maury sort of um, encapsulated. Right, right. That's really interesting. Cool. So then um, moving right along, now we're getting into the 80s. And <laughs> in the 80s, in 1985, you wrote the first book on essential oil safety, which is still, I mean, there's, there's a second edition now, right? And a third one in the works, I hear. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes, and, were, but you did, were. so in 85, that first edition came out. Why did you feel yeah. it was so important to, to write that book? Well, the International Fragrance Association, IFRA, mm -hmm. began publishing monographs on the safety of essential oils and other fragrance materials in the mid-1970s. I think it was 74, maybe their first publication. Okay. And um, a friend made me aware of these and said, hey, Robert, have you seen these, uh, these monographs? I said, no, I haven't, that's interesting. Um, and it was the first time I really became aware that there might be safety issues with essential oils at all. Okay. And I think up to that point, safety just wasn't a thing that was talked about. Um, essential oils are natural, you use them, Hopefully you got good results. That was it, really. <laughs> right, right, right. It was as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then monograph, more, more monographs were published. So I remember reading one on um, methylchavicol estragol, which is the major constituent of some basil oils, and thinking, oh, but that means this essential oil might be carcinogenic. That can't be true because right. we all use it. It can't possibly be dangerous. Right. Um, that must be wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. No. And I think when you come across that sort of information, you either ignore it or you, you know, you do what I did. Which goes, um, well, what if this is true? What if this is real? Um, what would that mean? Um, right. How could it, how could it be true? Is it true? Um, you know, if, if, if it harms a rat in a, in a large dose given by um, stomach tube or, or injection, will it harm a human um, used in dilution and massage? And I think that's a question that's still hard to answer. That's still difficult to answer. Okay. Um, 
and uh, may depend on, on quantity and frequency. So, um, yeah, that's how it started. And, 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 you know, talking to other people in, in the field and realizing that nobody was aware of this. Nobody uh, was aware that there might be safety issues. And, and I increasingly felt this was important. This episode is sponsored by Airmid Institute. Are you ready to be part of a sustainability revolution in the world of aromatics? Because an Airmid Institute membership is your gateway to making a meaningful impact that actually becomes a seed for change. I'm a member of Airmid Institute, and it's probably one of the most rewarding nonprofits I've ever joined. You see, by becoming a member of Airmid Institute, you're stepping into a global community that's completely focused on the sustainable stewardship of medicinal and aromatic plants. Here's what you'll get when you join. Twice a year, you'll get this amazingly curated list of threatened medicinal and aromatic plants, so you know what essential oils you might want to avoid using. They do all the work for you and make it really easy when it comes time to buying your aromatics. You also get access to innovative research and education, like the Rosewood Oil Study, and you can learn about fair trade and ethical sourcing through webinars they hold. I think my favorite part, though, is that your membership supports the use of medicinal plants in indigenous communities, like, for example, the Toucan Project for the Shipibo Kanibo of the Peruvian Amazon. So join Aramid Institute today and use the coupon code ROSEWOOD at checkout to receive a free copy of The Thing About Rosewood. Simply go to www.aramidinstitute.org. Together, we can protect medicinal and aromatic plants and their use in traditional medicine for future generations. So more recently, in 2015, you launched the Tisserand Institute, which is an online educational portal. So what was important to you about establishing that institute? Well, the the first Tisserand Institute was launched in 1987 or eight. And okay. Sure. But that was a physical school. Um, in London? In, in London. Um, and um, so I basically leased the whole building. Um, we had three very large teaching rooms, so we could have lots of massage couches in each one. And um, yeah. That went well for a while. And then yeah. the market changed and people decided that they could learn aromatherapy in the weekend. So why spend two years studying? Oh, wow. Um, they really thought so, that they could learn in a weekend or enough for yeah, what they needed? Well, that, basically, yes, that's the short version of the story, but yes. Okay. Um, and, uh, but now you don't even need a weekend. You can just call yourself an aromatherapist, right? That's right. right. Well, we'll get into that in a minute, but. <laughs> that school in London continued for 11 years and then it ceased to be. Okay. And the year after that, I moved to California. And yeah, in 2015, started a school using the same name because I thought, well, why change it? It worked before. Right. Um, and, but now it's all online. And what's wonderful about being online is that you can reach so many people internationally, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, it's... So it's, people who wouldn't be able to attend a class in right. a particular location in a different country or a different continent. It's true. It's true. I find that to be a positive for online learning. I think also in-person learning is so valuable as well, obviously. 
being in a room with other people and smelling. <laughs> I think that's it's, one of I mean, the it's, it's two quite different things. Yeah. For yeah. sure. There are pros and cons. There are things you can't really teach online. Yeah. yeah practically yeah. speaking. But <laughs> yeah. So I want to get into our sense of smell. Can we talk about our sense of smell for a minute? We, we can, for sure. Since this is what the podcast is all about. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to ask you, what comes to mind when you think of your sense of smell? What does your sense of smell mean to you personally? If you say sense of smell, what do I think of? Um, well, I think of the olfactory system and brain. <laughs> yeah, you get very and cilia scientific, and, biological, yeah, and epithelial membranes. Um, I, I think of that. Um, okay. Uh, and I think of tiny molecules, exciting tiny receptor sites. <laughs> I like that. I haven't gotten this answer before. So making it's, it's a new patterns in your brain that makes you think of something. Yeah, very good. Um, and how would you say that this beautiful sense has informed how you live your life and influenced the work that you do? Uh, I've done a lot of sniffing. Yeah, I imagine. And um, I think that over time, I think you do develop, I think a person develops what I call at least a smell memory. So I feel I can conjure up the smell of a mushroom absolute or a um, particular species of rose or jasmine um, extract you know, or um, you know many other items that would be used in, in aromatherapy or perfumery. Uh, I feel I can sort of conjure up those things in my brain, but I'm not really smelling them. And that's, that's interesting. That's, that's curious. Do you think so that is because I, you've been smelling it for so long that you don't need to anymore now, but because you did. Well, so no, I, I wouldn't say you don't need to, but, but when I'm creating what I call a fragrance, it's a natural fragrance, if you like, but when I'm creating, I just don't like the word blend. Um, I think it's too it's too short of a word. Okay. So um, when I'm creating a fragrance, um, first thing I do is write it. I don't smell anything. I just write it. Okay. It's like you sketch it out. You sketch it out, and like, okay, what what am I trying to create here? I, I need an idea. I need a concept. I need to know where I'm going. Um, some kind of inspiration. Some kind of direction. And it may be a brief from. A business or a person um uh but i the first thing i do is write here write out a simple idea um so ingredients and percentages okay sorry and, can i stop you for um, a minute because I, yeah. the reason you're able to do that for anyone listening who's just starting out or thinking about you know using essential oils um you just mentioned earlier that it's because you already have the concept or the idea of the scent in your brain. You've already established that scent memory. So if somebody's starting oh. out, it's probably still a good idea to get to know the materials. Oh, yeah. Before you do that. I, oh. I know. I, I, I just wanted to bring that up because there oh, are and this, I didn't start doing it like this. I didn't start, right. you know, right. after about 30 years, now. maybe you know, <laughs> 20 or 30 years. So it takes some time people, but the, if you're just starting next, out. But the next thing I do is I look at it and I think about it what it will smell like. And then I change some of the numbers, maybe even the ingredients, 
And then I think, okay, let's see what this might smell like. And then, then I'll try just pairs of ingredients, not putting everything together at once. Right. Because right. that almost certainly will fail. But just, okay, these are two of the key ingredients. Do they even like each other? Does, right. Is this interesting? And what kind of ratio might be good? And that's, you know, that's how I work. But it starts here. It starts I mean, it's, in the head. I'm pointing to my head. Yes. Um, <laughs> For those listening, yes. <laughs> but I think the most important thing is you have to know what you're trying to do, where you're, where you're going. I completely agree. The intention, like the, the, the goal, the aim. And it might be you just pick two ingredients at random and see what they're like together. And that might be the way it works, the way it evolves too. It can also be that. Uh, that might give you the direction. Okay, this I've got something very green and something very spicy, but these two things have an interesting relationship. That's right. That's right. And, and makes me think that I might want to add some other thing that makes that more interesting. Yeah, or that rounds um, it off a little bit yeah. or, you know, enhances it, whatever the case may be. And I also agree that sometimes you just have to try it because that helps you know, put it in the memory. Oh, you bank absolutely as well. have to try it. Right? And sometimes you just go, okay, I've worked on this for a week. It's not working. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> but your memory will. None of this is working. Yeah. But you remember. None of this that. is working. I know it's not working. I've been here before a million times. Yes. Yeah. Do something different. It's trial and error, people. That's what it is. Yeah. We have to be honest yeah. about that. Some of it is trial and error. I mean, a lot of it is coming from a point of having a, a reference point um knowing the materials knowing the safety of the materials you know all that stuff has to be up front but i made something last year and i thought i'm going to mix um i'm going to put jasmine absolute and eucalyptus all together in a an exciting shower product yeah did not work could not make it work but that's the kind of thing you know think you, know, you wouldn't really think that eucalypts and jasmine would work together and i thought i could make it work and maybe it's possible. It probably is possible. Um, but in the end, it was jasmine absolute and various gingery things that worked beautifully. Okay, good to know. This episode is sponsored by Essence of Time College of Holistic Studies. Are you interested in creating or advancing your career in aromatherapy? Because Essence of Time is the gold standard for aromatherapy certification. They're dedicated to nurturing your unique niche, offering a curriculum that spans the full spectrum of aromatic sciences. They offer comprehensive international online certification and diploma programs, as well as specialized short courses if you're interested in a particular subject. The programs are designed to delve deep into a variety of subjects, including aromatherapy, essential oil science, research, animal aromatherapy, aromatherapy training, formulation, hospice, and aromatic herbalism. The school is committed to fostering credibility and career preparation and ensures that all programs are led by globally acclaimed faculty. They provide unparalleled personal support, including one-on-one -on -one advising, personal mentorship, access to live guest lectures, and interactive forums so that you have the most supportive learning environment possible. Go to www essenceoftime.com to learn more and start your aromatherapy education journey today. And make sure you enter the code EOT5 
to enjoy a 5% discount on a program of your choice. Essence of Time. It's more than education. It's your path to leadership in aromatics. This episode is sponsored by Canda Scent Labs. Have you ever considered the impact of scent on your well-being? Our sense of smell is deeply tied to our overall health, yet it's often overlooked. It serves as a direct conduit to our memory, emotions, and central nervous system. And at Candescent Labs, they understand the magic behind aroma. Immerse yourself in the wonders of nature and experience the therapeutic benefits of fresh and natural aromas. At Candescent Labs, their aromas are made of 100% clean botanical ingredients that are free of all synthetics, meticulously formulated to delight your senses and provide wellness. What sets Candescent Labs apart? Each of their enchanting scents is carefully tailored to nourish different parts of your mind and body and harnesses the unique benefits of various essential oils to enhance your mood, relieve stress, reduce anxiety, and more. Explore Candescent's range of products, including candles, mists, diffusers, and diffusing blends, each designed to delight and nourish different parts of your mind and body. I've personally tried their candles, and they're so beautiful. If I had to pick a favorite, which honestly is really hard because they're all so great, I'd probably say it's the forest bathing candle. It's so relaxing and restorative. It's amazing. So whether you're seeking a moment of calm, a mood boost, a need to focus, or relief from everyday stressors, there's something for you. Go to candascent.com, that's C-A-N-D-A-S-C-E-N-T.com, and use the code Aromas for Wellness for a 15% welcome discount. Canda Scent Labs, where nature scents meet science-backed wellness, supporting your journey to a healthier, happier you. So how about aromatherapy? So if I say the word aromatherapy, what does that mean to you today after all these years? Is it still a happy well, it, thought? <laughs> it, it, it always sounds like a word I'm not very keen on either. So yeah, it's interesting. Uh, because, yeah. well, you know, if somebody asked me what is aromatherapy, I'm going to say, well, it's several things. Yeah. And sometimes two of them are used together, maybe three, but there's never a time when all, all these things are being used at the same time. So yeah, it's your sense of smell and how it makes you feel and what you think of the smell. Uh, maybe it's medicinal. Uh, maybe it's taking care of your skin in some way where your sense of smell doesn't come into it mm -hmm. and there isn't much pharmacology involved it's just skin interacting with mm -hmm. molecules um, maybe it's a cleaning or a hygiene product um, and maybe it's a mix of several things and and you know I think it's interesting looking at the massive research on lavender and how lavender oil I mean, and how it possibly affects how, um, you know, anxiety or sleep and how few people have really tried to find out how much of that is pharmacology and how much is psychology. It's true. Does it it's matter true. whether or not you like the smell of lavender? Can we determine, can we rate on a scale how much somebody likes the smell of lavender, or is that just not important at all? And, and this is so fundamental to what aromatherapy is, but it's 
an aspect that hasn't had a lot of attention. And it's just, inter it's just interesting. And I'm not saying anyone's right or wrong about anything. I don't know. And I think it's very likely that it's always some combination of, of some pharmacology, some, let's call it psychopharmacology, since it's a wonderful word, and, um, and just how it makes you feel. It'd be interesting, just on that point, it made me think of, because I work a lot with the anosmia community, right. and they don't have the ability to smell, but I, I believe essential oils still can have an effect on them through inhalation, correct? Um, there are some animal studies that yeah. suggest that's possible. Only animal studies, it's true, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's still, there's still, but that's also an interesting aspect to look at, you know, um, because they ask me all the time, the anosmic community, can I still use essential oh, I, oils? I've, <laughs> and often can been they help? A, I've often been sort of challenged by people in the scientific community who say, well, it's, it's aromatherapy, it's just placebo. And my answer to that is, what about the rats? Do they do placebo? Because it works for them. We could cure rats of everything. Right. We've done so many, you know, tests on rats. If we needed to cure the rat community, we could do it in a moment. But do they do placebo? It's <laughs> a good point. It's a really good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me ask you, looking back at the 70s and looking at aromatherapy today, what's the biggest change? Is it the science? Yeah, I think it is the science. Um, when I was researching the art of aromatherapy in 1975 and 1976. Well-conducted research and research itself in all areas, um, you know, medical research has has changed, has evolved, and has become more stringent. In spite of the fact that there are still there is still a lot of poor research in essential oils and in everything else, there is still a lot of poor research. But generally, standards are much better than they used to be, which is one reason reason that people often don't go back very far when they're citing research. They say, well, we looked at research from 1990 onwards or from 2000 onwards, because anything else before that, yeah, it's not going to be very good. Okay. That okay. kind of, you know, that kind of attitude. So, yeah, in the early 70s, um, it wasn't very much. And, <laughs> and that, was, that was the reason that in the art of aromatherapy, I, I just really went into the history and uh, I spent a lot of time in the British Museum Library looking at old herbal texts, scouring them for anything about essential oils. Because I thought, well, okay, there isn't much research. Let's see what else there is. You know, let's see what the tradition, traditional uses were for essential oils. I couldn't find very much. Um, found a few interesting bits and pieces um, and uh, about distillation and... Um, uh, yeah, some fascinating books. But anyway, that's maybe getting off subject. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. Um, so is there anything that you feel like people get really wrong about aromatherapy? Anything that really bugs you that you want to get off your chest? Um, well, a few things, I guess. 
I'm sure there's something because I know I would have a few and I haven't been doing it as long as you have. So I can only imagine what you've experienced over all um, those years. I can't talk about everybody. I, I, I can say that there seems to be a lot of misinformation and misinformation comes from many directions. Mm. I think it's curious that if you look at um, if you look at PubMed, if you look at published research and the opinions there about aromatherapy, I would say the consensus of opinion is that um, there's very little evidence that essential oils have any therapeutic properties. Okay. Not that there's no evidence they have any therapeutic properties, but there's very little evidence, clinical, good clinical evidence that essential oils have any therapeutic properties. And then if you look at the world of essential oil sales online, you will find that essential oils can cure just about everything. And there's a big disconnect here. What, what, what's going on? Why does one community say there's almost no evidence and, and the other community is saying, no, we, we, can, we can fix everything with essential yeah, oils, yeah. just about everything. What, what's, you know, what's, why is there this huge difference? Um, and I think one of the issues is that um, you can write a blog post and maybe give 10 or 15 citations backing up your argument when those citations don't, none of those citations actually back up your argument, but you can make it look as if they do. Um, and so it's very easy to convince other people that you know what you're talking about because you've cited some scientific studies um, that don't actually say what you believe them to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and I think the other reason is that if you're selling essential oils, anyone who's selling essential oils, it is in your interest to sell essential oils. That's okay. That's your business. I understand that. And so if you can say something positive about essential oils, of course, you're going to do that. And if you can avoid saying anything negative about essential oils, of course, you're going to do that too, or not do that. And so we have a situation where the seller emphasizes the positive in ways that have become massively distorted. And the buyer wants to believe them because they want to believe that this will fix their problem. Yeah. And so it's a cozy relationship that continues. Yeah, that's true. And we haven't even, which we have no time for, but there's the whole aspect of sustainability and conservation that goes along with that as well. Which, because I would say, I mean, you must agree that the availability of essential oils today versus in the seventies, I mean, that's why you started by selling essential oils, there wasn't that much availability, I imagine, right? So, and, and you can get it anywhere now. Here in the US, you can get it at Target. You can get it at your natural food store. I mean, there, just you can go anywhere. Yeah. And, and Amazon. Maybe, maybe, maybe in some ways it's a good thing that a lot of it's adulterated because- It's a good thing? <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> well, maybe we're cutting down less trees than we think. Oh, I see, okay. <laughs> No, I mean it's not no, good. I know. Um, then there's, there's it's not good. It's just a whole. It's yeah. a whole mess. It's, it's a, a mess. whole mess. It. I agree, and it's it's probably a whole nother conversation. But it's just amazing to me. Those are the big key things that I would say. It's it's the science. It's the availability of essential oils, and the misinformation, just because of the many communication channels that we have now, versus even ten years ago, fifteen years right. ago. 
So people can get all kinds of information and and create information. And I'm I'm not saying that essential oils uh, don't do anything, just to be clear on that. Uh, Many essential oils can do many things, um, but it can get blown out of proportion. Yeah, yeah. The extremes is what you're trying to say. Yeah, it definitely can get blown out of proportion. I want to spend just a minute kind of it's it's kind of in the safety area um it's this what i call i'm going to go there because having been in the fragrance industry this is one of those topics that doesn't get talked about a lot but yet the general public really cares a lot about and it's this idea of natural versus synthetic mm-hmm. right that all, all things natural are good all things synthetic are bad of course that's not the case it requires a lot of educating. There's a place for both, right? There, there's a purpose for both. I mean, you, you and I'd love for to get your perspective on the whole natural versus synthetic debate. Well, um, it's easier to define synthetic than it is to define natural. Um, and it's, Really, once you start to look at it, it's 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 a kind of it's a grayscale. Okay. So if I talk to the fragrance industry, they will say, "Oh yeah, this fragrance we've made is 100% natural." Okay, can you tell me what's in it? Nope. nope. <laughs> we we can guarantee it's 100% natural. Okay, by whose definition? Well, my definition. <laughs> exactly. So um, uh, this may sound a bit cynical um because i'm not in the fragrance industry but um the fragrance industry seems to define natural as anything that might might occur in nature yeah and if it can be found if if it's nature identical so it can be found somewhere in a leaf or an insect and we can synthesize it we're going to call it natural and that really does seem to be the case with the fragrance industry Um, so you have to then decide well what is natural for you what or your organization or your um your brand what do you want to define yeah Yeah. how do you define natural what do you include or exclude in that um somebody a student asked me recently i saw um an organic uh single chemical you know aromatic chemical and how can a single aromatic chemical be organic and i said well it it can actually if if it came from, if it was processed from an organically grown plant, you can call it organic and it's a single chemical. Weirdly, you can. Um, in the food industry, uh, pick up almost anything that's flavored and it will say natural flavoring. It's probably not natural by your definition, by you know our definition. Um, but again, if it's nature identical, if it can be found in nature, it can be called natural flavoring. Yeah. Which I think is not groovy. And I think um, it would be nice if all cleaning products, all fragrance products, all flavored products told us what was in there. Some companies are starting to do this, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, is, it, is it J&J that started that? I know S.C. Johnson was doing it. S.C. Johnson, the, the, right. So the they have on their, on their website on their website yes they were the first ones i think that right so you can go there and see that wow there's 175 ingredients in this fragranced ingredients in this product and there's some you know it contains 
and they don't tell you how much of anything is in there, but wow, they put acetone in there intentionally. Why would they do You know, or they, <laughs> but interesting things. And, uh, you know, as a consumer, not as myself, but as a consumer, it's just going to be baffling. It is. It's, it's just it's a, list, a list of chemicals. But, but to answer your question of synthetic versus natural, which I've been skirting around, um, yeah, of course, it doesn't directly relate to safety. No. Um, you know, if, if it's, uh, um, I don't know, a black widow spider or a highly, highly, poison, highly poisonous snake or something, it's, it's a natural poison, but it can kill you. Um, if you, um, if you take bitter almond oil fresh, fresh from the still and, and drink an ounce, it will kill you because it's got about 3% of hydrocyanic acid. Yeah. also known as cyanide, and it will kill you. Um, so that has to be removed before the bitter almond oil can be sold in the food flavoring industry when this is done on a, on a massive scale mm -hmm. um, and has been for um, since the 1860s, I think. They figured out that people could walk into a, a chemist, uh, particularly in London, and buy an ounce of almond oil to put in cakes or something. Um, but if they felt suicidal, they could just drink a bottle and die. And, wow. and they figured out this wasn't a good thing. Yeah. So some laws was introduced. I think it was in, in England in the 1860s that you can't sell this stuff and, until you remove um, the hydrocyanic acid. So you're like, yeah, um, uh, natural isn't always safe and synthetic isn't always dangerous either. Yeah, it's it's a really long debate. Probably re requires a whole another conversation with a lot. I think of the debate yeah. isn't so much about safety, really, as about the the ethics and uh, and the environmental impact That's of true. how something is made. And uh, and certainly, fragrance companies seem to be much more aware of that now in how they are producing yeah. uh, many fragrance materials, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot to be done on educating the consumer right? There's by all yeah. kinds of different organizations. So it's just, yeah. we have to continue to educate. Well, let me ask you along the lines of, I think we touched on this earlier. I wanted to ask you also about, I just mentioned that essential oils are available everywhere. <laughs> you can find them as much as you want, and there's a lot of adulteration going on. So personally, what you're seeing out there, do you think the quality of essential oils is still very high, or do you think it's getting worse because the market keeps growing, and I don't know that we're planting more trees. Or uh, I, you know, I mean, if anything, I, with, I well, don't know. I, I think I don't, I don't have enormous kind of inside knowledge of the the total industry, but my impression is that there is um, more adulteration now than there was when I got into the industry yeah. more than fifty years ago, um, and. Uh, you know, I will smell an essential oil and think, it shouldn't smell like this, because I can still remember how it kind of used yeah. to smell. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's just my imagination. I think sometimes, um, I think a lot of citrus oils are blended now. I, I agree. And um, so they don't have that crisp lemon or whatever orange. They don't have that fresh crispness because they're blended and that's, not exactly adulteration, maybe, but then if an oil, if 
you know, if a manufacturer admits that their orange oil is blended, well, what do they actually put in there? Do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's just something to be aware of if you're using essential oils that really make sure you you know your supplier well or that they're sourcing. It's never a hundred percent guarantee, even for the supplier, right? They they even sometimes right. are. But I but I would and I, and I would say if if your supplier says they only buy from small distillers and they're selling a hundred different oils, don't believe them. Ah. Because how is that happening? If you're a small distiller, you don't you're not exporting. Right. 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 If you're truly small. So if you're buying if you're buying directly from small distillers. Then you're selling 10, maybe 20 essential oils. Right. Good point. Do you, do you follow me? I completely follow you. I think that's a wonderful point. I'm glad you made that point. <laughs> it's very good. Um, all right, let me ask you another safety question because you know you're you're my safety guy. So <laughs> I wanted to ask you. So sure. if people who are starting out using essential oils, maybe they've been using them already pretty regularly but they haven't gotten trained in a lot of safety. Can you give me like three tips on what people should keep in mind when they're working with essential oils from a safety perspective? Well, that's difficult. Um, um, well, uh, I think obvious things to say would be um, don't put undiluted essential oils on your skin because it's risky. It's a risky okay. thing to do. Don't put undiluted essential oils directly into the, to a bathtub because it's a very highly risky thing to do. Because if you sit on uh, a drop of essential oils, you will never do it again, but you don't want to do that. Um, and um, yeah, be very careful about in, ingestion. I, I have never said you should not ingest essential oils. I've never said that. People think I have. Um, because it sounds like I've said that, but I've never said that. What I will say is, I don't know if this is a good idea. Um, uh, unless you really feel that you know what you're doing, I'm not sure you should be doing it. Um, certainly if you're putting essential oils in water and drinking them, um, that's also risky because you're damaging the mucous membrane in your gut and you're probably not going to feel it, but you're doing that. Really good points. Really good points. Thank you. I just think it was important to keep reminding people of those things. <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, there are things that you and I know, but there could be people listening who are using essential oils for the first time. They're getting their information from the internet and this ingesting and, and you know, right. undiluted, just applying it to the skin. Those are really important points. Thank you. So as a last topic, just before we, we finish here, I kind of want to get back into the science of things. I know you're an avid reader of scientific studies, right? I am. <laughs> so what's the most exciting thing you're seeing right now in the scientific communities that relates to essential oils or aromatherapy? Um, I'm not sure if I'm seeing any particularly exciting things. Oh, bummer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think some of the, some of the things I've seen in recent years were the discovery that uh, of the discovery of transient receptor potential channels. So the discovery by the scientific community that we have these receptor sites called transient receptor potential channels or TRP channels and that many essential oil constituents um, interact with 
a particular TRP channel. Um, and that's not a new thing that's, you know, some years ago, but it's still kind of new, I think, in, in aromatherapy um, is uh, it's a new aspect of pharmacology. It's a new aspect of how essential oils interact with our body. Um, but I guess a more recent interesting trend in research, and it's not a single study, but a more interesting trend is um, microemulsions, microencapsulation. So, and this doesn't only apply to essential oils, but it very much does apply to essential oils because, um, because they're not water soluble, because they're actually not easy to get from A to B in the body or even through the skin or even when inhaling when microencapsulated or made into a microemulsion, and these are not easy things to do, unfortunately, um, they will be better absorbed and in general also safer. And I think this is a very important future direction and it's more likely to be explored in the pharmaceutical, pharmacological world than it is in everyday aromatherapy. But, um, it certainly is a very interesting direction. Um, and it's, it, it, it applies to all methods, uh, all delivery systems, whether it's ingestion, inhalation, topical or anything else. If you can microencapsulate or make a microemulsion, um, you're, you're probably doing a good thing. However, <laughs> I have to say, this is this is not an easy thing to do. There's a lot to know, um, and uh, I don't recommend that you just kind of try this at home. And uh, yeah, no, I'm not recommending that. Um, but it solves many of the challenges that we have in in delivery systems and getting essential oils where we need them to go in the body. Right, and a clinical side of things, yeah. Or yeah, in the body or on the body. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important. Thank you. Are you feeling like the current studies that are being conducted are, are more robust now? Uh, I'm seeing a lot of um, reviews. So someone will take uh, uh, an aspect, um, uh, for example, um, clinical studies with essential oils and menstrual pain. Okay, let's look at all the clinical studies on this subject and review them and look at the how robust the evidence is, how solid the evidence is, um, and then come to a conclusion. And uh, so doing a systematic review or a meta-analysis, which are two slightly different things, um, I'm seeing a lot of those with, okay. with aromatherapy. And um, most of the conclusions I think I can say most most of the time the conclusion is, well, this looks promising, but there isn't enough solid evidence. Oh. To yeah, <laughs> that's disappointing. And this is this is partly because um, studies are often done in very different ways, and so when you compare them, you're yes. not really comparing like with like. So, um, for example, with menstrual pain, somebody used this blend of essential oils, somebody else used a completely different blend of essential oils. So we could possibly say that aromatherapy seems to work, but we don't really know what's doing what. Um, so in terms of research, uh, it's not as useful as it might otherwise be if, uh, if everyone used the same thing. Yeah, yeah. 
whether it's a single or a blend. Uh, if, if we had, you know, 10 studies all using the same thing, then we could perhaps say, okay, we've done a meta-analysis of this um, and the evidence looks very solid. So um, that, is th that seems to be the general trend of, yeah, we can't really say yes or no conclusively. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason is also that many of the clinical trials are small because there isn't a lot of funding for this type of research. Right. And right. the reason for that is that most of the funding comes directly or indirectly from the pharmaceutical industry. There you go. Or the chemicals industry, even, even if it's not directly the pharmaceuticals industry. Yeah, yeah. And so the funding isn't there most of the time for large studies. Yeah. We have seen large studies with lavender oil because the product marketed containing lavender oil is made by a pharmaceutical company in Germany. There you go. That also believes in uh, natural ingredients, but they have the funding. Right, right. That's really interesting. All right. I've taken up a lot of your time. I have three questions that I ask all of my guests at the end. I gave those questions to you at the beginning. So should we get you're, into it? You're prepping me, you're prepping me. <laughs> I'm prepping you, yes. <laughs> so let me ask you first, Robert, what's your favorite smell right now? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what my favorite smell is. Um, but I think it's, I think it's probably the smell of, of freshly ground coffee beans in the morning. That's a wonderful smell. And any, any time before midday. Okay. All morning long, the smell of fresh ground coffee. <laughs> After that, I'm not, I'm not indulging in caffeine. Okay. Very good. Very for, good. For obvious reasons. <laughs> so sh do you have a favorite scent memory that you could share with us? Oh gosh. Favorite scent memory. Um, I was at a perfumery conference and I uh, was walking in, I think it was at Warwick University in the UK, and we were just walking through gardens. It wasn't particularly a fragrant garden. Um, and I was chatting to somebody in the fragrance industry. I don't remember who. And uh, we just started talking about the smell of grass because there was... I don't know, freshly cut, gra cut grass in the air, maybe. And uh, I said, oh, that's cis hexanel, isn't it? And he looked at me and he said, wow, you really do know your stuff, don't you? <laughs> so I was very proud in that moment. And, and I do remember that moment. I thought, yeah, I know, I know what that is. I know what we're <laughs> smelling. We're smelling cis hexanel. <laughs> very nice, very nice. <laughs> good, good. And the last question, if you could say, what are the five smells that best describe you? That's difficult. I mean, I, I, I don't wear fragrance. Um, and, and when you work with fragrances or essential oils, uh, I, you don't want smelly things around you a lot because it's your work. And That's you right. need to kind of save your nose for, for work. Um, <laughs> Well, they can be just everyday smells but I, um, that you like. I, I'm, I'm living in a 
property right now that has a really nice rose garden which was planted many years ago um uh, but whoever planted the rose garden um planted many different types of roses and many of them are fragrant in different ways which is unusual yeah uh and delightful um and actually right now it's it's mid-august and most of the roses are not in bloom as they were two to three months ago but um yeah that was that was wonderful to come here and discover these different roses and not necessarily to know what species it is or what cultivar it is um i remember being also being on Kauai, one of the hawaiian islands and walking near the beach and looking at this tree and and it had blossoms on it and you know that that you could reach and i remember smelling that and going oh my god that's gorgeous and i think i know what that is it's frangipani yeah wow i just was walking one day and discovered this amazing flower <laughs> so you knew the smell before you knew the flower well i i smelled it and thought that it's kind of lemony you know gorgeous ephemeral but very but still there i can't describe it but um but then looking at it thinking oh yeah i, I do actually recognize this flower i've seen pictures of it right right but it's you know it's it's nice when you don't know what something is it's just it's, it's in a way it's a more magic moment that's what i was trying to I say i agree you know, i agree the roses and the other things and uh you know, it's fun if you're in a, a fragrant garden, you can say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. And I know what that is because I'm an aromatherapist and I know stuff about plants. Um, <laughs> but it's also wonderful when you don't know what something is and it still smells fascinating. Um, yeah. The surprise of it. I love it. Singapore too. a couple of years ago in, um, in an orchid garden and there was a, a subsection of fragrant orchids and I didn't even know there were that many fragrant orchids and each one of them had um, an identification and description of, of the smell, which was very accurate. Um, and that was amazing because uh, some of them just didn't smell natural at all. <laughs> really? <laughs> really, yeah. Um, and some, I've smelled roses that smell absolutely synthetic to me. Like I swear that this was a synthetic fragrance and that just shows what, preconceived ideas even I can have about what's natural or what's synthetic yeah it's a good point nature it does. also goes to show you you should always smell smell nature smell, does smell. incredible things just incredible things. Yeah, yeah 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 it's very true we try to copy and it's difficult yeah yeah well, that's good so we've got rose frangipani I would put um the orchids you had in there, right? And I would put coffee in there since you've already had coffee as a, a favorite smell right now. Well, I think two, I think two of my all-time favorite smells are musk seed and orris root. Okay. There you go. Just because um just they're wonderful. Thank you for going through that exercise with me. I appreciate it. Gives us a You're little welcome. bit. Of a, of a dimension of who Robert is. That's great. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you being here today and, and spending this time with us. Thank you.
Thanks for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast and invite your friends too. And it would be so helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, anaromaticlife.com, where I share lots of information, including my projects around the sense of smell. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.